0: Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church and visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Teaching today is our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. All right, good morning everyone. Hope you had a great uh, Thanksgiving. Uh, let's take out our Bibles today and turn to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, we're studying verse by verse through the book of Galatians uh, as a church. And today we're in Galatians 3 verse 1 through 5 in a message called See the Gospel. See the Gospel. And as you guys are turning there, I just wanted to uh, remind you of an announcement that I made last week about our February 2024 tour of Israel that's open to anyone in the church. This will be a 10-day tour where... Uh, We will be studying archaeology, we'll be studying history, uh, but we'll also be studying the Bible. Uh, We'll spend about the first half of the trip in the region of the Galilee where Jesus' gospel, where the gospel's mostly centered upon. And then the second half of the trip we'll spend down in Jerusalem where so much biblical history unfolded. It will be teaching after teaching, uh, site after site, and you, the Bible will really come alive for you if you make this investment. It's not a vacation. It's a discipleship investment. So if that's something that you feel led to do, just go to camrycom Israel and get yourself signed up just to basically say, I'd like to stay in the loop. It's not you committing to the trip just yet. Uh, Payments aren't due for a long time, but it'll be a way for us to know that at least you're interested so we can reach out and email you when it's time for meetings or Q&A sessions or when uh, important due dates are coming up. So I just wanted to double back and remind you of that today if that's something that was interesting to you uh, last week. Okay, today, Galatians 3, we're going to look at the first five verses today of Galatians 3. If you guys would follow along with me, I want to read the whole thing to you. Paul the Apostle writing, and you guys know if, that this is a confrontational letter, and so Paul said in verse 1, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being Perfected by the flesh. Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? And does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Lord, we come to you this morning and pray, Lord, that we would see the gospel, that the message of the cross would be clear to us, Lord, that we'd see Jesus as portrayed as crucified clearly, Lord, and that this would be the driver of so much of who we are and what we are throughout our lives. So help us, Lord, we pray, and I ask that you'd use these five verses to strengthen us in this direction, Lord, in life. We pray it and ask for it, Lord, in Jesus' name, we pray together, amen, amen. I don't know if you've ever seen a a, a movie that so thoroughly depicts a scene that you feel like you're there. Uh, I know for me, one that came to my mind as I was preparing this week is um, a movie that came out a couple of years ago called 1917. Uh, It's a movie about World War I and it centers around two young soldiers who are given the task to take a message across enemy lines to uh, another platoon on the other side of a battlefield, and it follows them on their journey. And for me, it just feels like I'm there when I'm watching that scene, like I've learned something of what it must have been like to be in that battle, in that era, and with that military equipment. Paul the Apostle, in writing to the Galatian church, He knew that when he had gone to Galatia, he had so clearly portrayed Jesus to them. In fact, that's what he says in verse one of our passage. He says that he had publicly portrayed Jesus Christ as crucified before their eyes. He knew that he had depicted Jesus in such a clear way. Jesus, not just his life, Uh, Not just his resurrection, but Jesus's death on the cross. The, The crucifixion itself was something that Paul had held out to these Galatian believers. So much so that it was as if they were there. It's like they'd seen Jesus in his death on the cross. Not just with their eyes, but also with their souls. And so Paul is shocked that a people who'd had such a revelation of Jesus a people for whom Jesus had become famous, so to speak. He is shocked that they are drifting so quickly from the very message that he had publicly pronounced to them. So Paul begins this new section of the letter. Over the last few weeks, we've been looking at chapter one and chapter two of Galatians where Paul focuses on defending the gospel by defending himself. They said that his gospel wasn't true because he wasn't qualified to preach it. And so in the first two chapters, he defends himself, not just to defend himself, but because he wants to defend the gospel. But now Paul's done defending himself. He's already built that argument and now he turns to theology. And he begins with a series of rhetorical questions that he asks the Galatian church. But before he does that, he jolts them into attention by calling them a foolish group of people whose behavior could only be explained by the possibility that someone had bewitched them. That's what he actually says there in verse one, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? That that word bewitched, is actually an interesting word. It's a word that they would use in their era to describe uh, the influencing of someone in an evil way through the power of a glance or the power of the eye. It's not that Paul believed in such superstition, but it's the way that they spoke in that era. I can't read of that definition without thinking of Sauron and the Lord of the Rings and the great eye that influenced so many people for darkness. And Paul, as he looked at the Galatians, it's like he's thinking, the only explanation for you turning from Jesus, who I so clearly portrayed among you as crucified, the only explanation is that you've fallen under some type of spell. And so Paul wants to get them back to seeing the goodness of the cross of Jesus. Uh, If you've ever seen an artistic depiction of someone using a crucifix in a superstitious way, I don't think we should ever use a crucifix in a superstitious way, but if you've seen that, you know someone holding it as a way to ward off evil spirits or something like that in a movie or something, uh, you've seen a good illustration for what Paul is doing in this passage. He sees the error of the Galatian church and he's holding out the cross of Christ, the crucifixion of Jesus, trying to say to them, I clearly portrayed him once before, And I'm clearly portraying him again now. And I wanna ask you some questions that relate to that cross that I'm proclaiming. And I want you to notice that. The essence of Paul's message to the Galatians was not a set of values. The essence of Paul's message to the Galatians was not a bunch of morals. No, the essence of Paul's message to the Galatians was an event. And the event was that Jesus died on the cross for their sin. In other words, the gospel wasn't just a message or a set of beliefs. It was an event, the brutal death of their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, when Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, he said this. If you're taking notes, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2. He said, when I came to you, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, when Paul said that, when he said to the Corinthians, hey, when I showed up there in Corinth, I made a decision that I would only know, I'd only proclaim, I'd only declare, I'd only present myself to be an expert in the cross of Jesus Christ. Paul wasn't saying, that he wouldn't talk about anything but the cross. So like if you were a parent there in the church in Corinth and you were just struggling with your three-year-old or something like that and you came to Paul and you're like, hey, I need some help. I need some counsel. I need some guidance. What do I do? Paul would not look at you and say, well, let me tell you the story. Jesus, the night before he was betrayed, broke bread with his disciples. Then they came and got him and they beat him up and then they put him on the cross. That's not what Paul is saying. What Paul is saying is that every single thing he proclaimed to the Corinthian church was rooted in, grounded in, and founded upon the events of the cross of Jesus. He would have walked you as a parent of that three-year-old through a perspective on parenting that is tied to the gospel itself. Because as Christians, everything that we think and feel And do should be tied to the cross. But for this to occur, we have to see the gospel over and over and over again. Jesus has to be vividly portrayed in our minds and in our hearts as the one who was crucified for us. We have to see the cross. Uh, Thomas Schreiner said it this way. He said, as Christians, we need to relearn the gospel every day. We're prone to wander, as the old hymn says, and hence we may act as if a spell has been cast over us. The Christian life is a battle to rely on the gospel. In our counseling and our preaching and teaching, we must summon people over and over to the cross of Christ and call them to look away from themselves and focus on Christ. We may slowly drift from the gospel, just as the Galatians did. The problems Paul addressed in Galatia Remind us all that the Christian life cannot be lived on autopilot, that there is a daily struggle to grasp the gospel. And that's what Paul wants. Paul wanted them and he wants us to see the gospel afresh. And if we do, he knows that beautiful results will follow. And so that's why Paul asked them four rhetorical questions in verse two through five. And each rhetorical question reveals a benefit of the gospel. If you see the gospel afresh, this is what will unfold in your life. So let's think about each of these four benefits, starting with the first in verse two. The first rhetorical question that Paul asked helps us remember that the gospel unleashed the spirit. The gospel unleashed the spirit. Look at the question that he asked in your Bibles, in your hands, in verse two. He asked them, did you receive the spirit by works of the law, or by hearing with faith. In other words, to the Galatians, he's saying, hey, Galatians, when the Spirit began to live inside of you, when you began to experience the power of the Spirit, uh, when you became conscious that God in the Spirit had taken up residence within you, when did that occur, and how did that occur in your life? Did it occur after Somebody told you about Judaism, uh, told you about a Sabbath system or certain ceremonies or for the men, the rite of circumcision, and then you obeyed and then the Spirit came in? Or did the Spirit come after simple faith and trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ? And the Galatians would have answered resoundingly, we know when the Spirit came into our lives. The Spirit came into us the moment that we believed in Jesus. Paul, you came with Barnabas to our towns and you preached the gospel message and we heard it, we repented of our sin, we trusted in Jesus and the spirit came and made his home within us. We were renewed, we were regenerated, we were born again by the spirit. In fact, the Galatians wouldn't have even thought of keeping the law in order for the spirit to come because they were Gentile people. No one had even suggested to them that the law was something they should keep just yet. It was only when false teachers came into their midst that such an idea even began to enter in. No, the Galatians had simply seen and believed the gospel of Christ. And when they did, the spirit immediately began residing within each one of them. And I think the reason that Paul is holding this out is because, a life led by the Spirit, if you think about it, is the beautiful opposite or the beautiful counter to a life of legalism, a life that is led by man made strictures and laws that other people place upon you. Well, let me try to illustrate it this way. I, when i when i get a chance to fly there's actually there's a lot that i hate about flying i don't like going through security and i don't like being a large person in a small seat i don't like those kind of things but there's one thing that i really like and they're starting to chip away at it these days but i really like Uh, Being totally disconnected for however long I'm in the air. You know, if it's a six hour flight or whatever, I love the fact that there's no Wi Fi, that there's no cell service, and that I really have a chance to just kind of focus in on whatever I want to focus in on. So for me, I love that time. I'll use it to maybe write something or read something or research something, or maybe there's just a good movie that I've been meaning to watch, you know, kind of a man movie. And in my house with three daughters and a wife, I don't really get much of a chance to watch it. And so that'll be like my shot or my moment. But I've noticed this frustrating thing that has started to occur with me on some of these flights. You know, over the last few years, airlines have started putting in individual TV screens on the back of every single headrest throughout the whole plane, right? My first move is I hit the power off on that thing. I don't want to even have any rotating graphics that are in front of me. I just want a nice black screen. But because I'm tall, uh, my head is above the seats and I can see like 30 other TV screens throughout the plane. And I've discovered that as I'm there, like trying to read or write or think or even watch my own thing, my attention will wander and I'll start watching some random person's screen like six rows in front of me. I can't hear what's going on, I don't know the story, but I'm captivated. I mean, it's pretty creepy, like if you turned around, like, hey, look at your own screen, you know? What are you doing? To me, that's what legalism is like. It's life that is focused on someone else's screen. But the spirit-led life, it's a life that is creative, renewing, and rich. But the legalistic life, it always throws you into someone else's mold. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 12 that the Spirit gives a variety of gifts to people who then conduct a variety of ministries, he said, in a variety of ways. Three times in one little section, Paul uses the word various or variety. That's what the Spirit produces, but legalism produces sameness. We all have to look exactly the same way. It's a mold And really what it does is it destroys the need for God's personal work in our lives. Pretty soon with a law code that's man-made, we're not led by God anymore because all we need to do is look to the legalistic code that someone else created for us. But the gospel breaks all that apart. Not only did the cross create the way for God and man to know one another, but it unleashed the spirit on each and every believer in Jesus and the spirit who is God, helps us to know and interact with God. Now, last week I shared with you from John chapter 14, um, verse 16, where Jesus promised his disciples. He said, look, I'm leaving, but I'm going to pray to the Father, and he is going to give you another spirit, another helper, the spirit of truth. And what I explained to you last week is that that word another that Jesus used, he could have used a Greek word that meant another of a lesser kind and quality, but he used a word that meant another of the same kind and quality. So the spirit is going to be just as good of a helper towards you disciples, Jesus was saying, as I am. Now some translations don't say another helper, they say another advocate because that Greek word for helper or advocate is a difficult word, it means a lot of different things. Um, But the NIV, for instance, says another advocate. And if you think about it, what Jesus is, is Jesus is our advocate, right? He uh, advocates for us before the Father, you know, declaring our righteousness to his Father. Father, they believed in me, they've trusted in me, they're clothed with with my righteousness. Uh, But the Spirit is our advocate in a different direction. He, Jesus, speaks to the Father on our behalf, but the Spirit speaks to us on behalf of the Father. He gives us insight into what God's desires and plans and purposes are for us. And that still small voice, he ministers to, directs, even convicts us in our lives. Uh, This last week, Formula One wrapped up their racing season, and I'm a Formula One fan, so I've got a few months where I don't know what I'm going to watch for sports. I'm not a football guy. But um, one thing that's interesting about watching a Formula One race is that they actually let you listen in on some of the conversation between the driver who is on radio with their team back in the garage or the paddock. All throughout the race, the team is in the driver's ear telling them, Here's how your tires are doing, or here's how your engine is doing, or here's how uh, far you are behind someone or ahead of someone, or here's an update to our strategy. They're in constant contact and communication with each other. And our advocate, the Spirit of God, he is that way for us. He uses the Bible or sermons or other believers or prayer in our own devotional life to give us the the updates that we need as we're passing through life. He's wanting to be in constant contact with us, not because of our works, but because of the cross of Christ available to lead and guide our lives. So that's the first thing that Paul said is that the spirit is unleashed because of the gospel. When you see the cross afresh, you remember that. Oh yeah, I have the spirit of God because of what Jesus did, not because of what I've done. But the second rhetorical question Paul asks helps us remember this, number two, that the gospel supplies the resources we need to become complete. The the gospel supplies the resources we need to become complete. Look at the question Paul asked in verse three. This is his second big rhetorical question. He said, having begun in the spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Now, Paul's first question that he asked them about how did you receive the Spirit would have made the Galatians say, oh yeah, we received the Spirit by faith. So they're admitting we began by the Spirit. So Paul is asking, well, are you going to be made perfect? Are you going to be made complete? Are you going to become mature by human effort? You weren't saved by human effort. Uh, You weren't saved by your own works. You were saved by the work of Jesus. So are you going to be made perfect now? Are you gonna be matured? Are you gonna be sanctified through your own effort? And these are important questions. How do we as Christians make progress? Now Paul's thought is that we make progress as Christians the same way as we became Christians in the first place. Listen to what I, what I mean by this. When, when you become a Christian, You might break it into lots of different categories of how it occurred or many different steps, but let's break it up for simplicity's sake into four steps. Let's say first of all that step number one is that you're confronted with your sin somehow or some way. Maybe it's you're at the bottom of the barrel, you're at the end of your rope, so it's just the effects of sin and you're feeling that, like my life is just empty or meaningless or pointless or something like that, or maybe, you realize, like, I've done a lot of damage with my life. I've hurt a lot of people. So somehow, some way, you realize the sin problem. Then the second thing that would have happened if you've become a Christian is that somehow, some way, the cross became real to you. You started realizing uh, Jesus is the answer for my sin. Uh, he's the solution. He died on the cross for this sin in my life. Step three would then be a response to that. You know, it's not enough to just know that fact about Jesus, but there needs to be a response. And we would say that the response is faith, but wrapped up in that faith, faith would be some sort of repentance unto God. God, I'm, I'm tired of this. I don't want to live this way any longer. Thank you for what you've done for me, and I trust and believe in Jesus. And then the fourth and final step would be that God regenerates you, that he makes you complete in his sight, that he gives the righteousness of Jesus to you. That's how uh, justification or salvation occurs. But Paul's premise seems to be that that's also how we grow as Christians. In other words, the same process unfolds. Uh, There's a moment where we come face to face with some shortcoming or some sin in our lives. This is a really big part of being a Christian, by the way. You know, we're walking with Jesus, we're positionally forgiven by God, uh, but we still have these bodies that, uh, and we still use them to do harm to other people. And so there'll be moments where the spirit convicts us and we see some kind of error or sin in our lives. Then we see the cross. That's what Paul is suggesting. We're to look again to the cross of Christ. We're to see the sufficiency of Jesus, what he has done for us. We're then to repent and trust in him afresh and he then makes us complete by his spirit. He is the one, Paul is saying, who will grow us, not our human effort, but the spirit working in us if we repeatedly turn to the cross. Let me try to illustrate this, this need to be nourished by a clear portrayal of the gospel over and over again uh, with human life. You know, when a baby is in the womb, uh, it needs oxygen and it needs nutrition, right? And we receive that oxygen, we receive that nutrition with a, through a connection to our mothers. You know, we, through the umbilical cord and the placenta, we we receive everything that we need to live and to continue to grow. But after a human is born, their need for oxygen, though their delivery system changes, their need for oxygen and nutrients it Remains. It's not like as babies we say, you know, I have graduated from my need for oxygen and I've graduated from my need for nutrition. No, we still need it. Uh, it just comes in a different format. Similarly, after we are born again, we still need to depend regularly on the gospel as our resource for growth. By the cross, we're regenerated and justified and by the cross, we can be renewed and sanctified. Let me try to give you an example of this from my own life, if I could. I know every one of us, we all battle various forms of temptation. The Bible teaches that temptation is a common experience throughout humanity. There's no temptation that you're feeling that is some unique wild, like, wow, you're the weirdo, you know, kind of thing. It's a common experience among humanity. But I think that all of us, we would probably, if we're honest, we'd be able to identify a handful of temptations that seem particularly powerful to us. And uh, if you can't identify those in your life, you could just ask your friends and your loved ones what they are, and I'm sure they'll have a list for you. Uh, But for me, I realized early on in my Christian life, you know, and I started walking with the Lord when I was 18, I started realizing pretty quickly that uh, I had a battle with anger. Uh, It was just kind of, I'm not talking about like fly off the handle fits of rage or anything like that. I wasn't like a threat to anybody, but I just realized that that was kind of like my go-to emotion. You know, like uh, there's a red light and I'm not worried that I'm not going to get there on time. I'm angry that I'm not going to get there on time, you know, or whatever it might be. And so I began immediately praying and asking the Lord, Lord, would you work this out in my life. I I want victory. We'd sing songs about victory. That would be one of the things that I would be thinking of. I want victory in this area of my life. And God has been faithful. He has given me a lot of victory in this area of my life. I've not fully arrived, but the Lord has helped me. Gradually and steadily, he has helped me. I am scared to think of what I would be without the Lord and his help. But I've found over the years that there was more to it than just praying that God would deliver me from this anger. I also found that it was really important for me in the moments I was tempted to be angry, it was really important for me to go back and have a clear portrayal of the cross to consider what happened there. In Jesus' death, I died. And my life was wrapped up completely in him and I'm made now new in him. And the more that I understand that, the more I understand that I'm made complete in him. So what that means is that there is nothing circumstantial in my life that will complete me. And that is often the root of where anger comes from. I need things to be this way, I need them to happen like this, because if they do, I know, I believe, I'm confident, I will then be completed. I will then be satisfied. But the more I go back to the gospel and realize, no, none of those circumstantial things could ever hope to completely, complete me. It helps me to become less rattled in those moments where I'm tempted to become angry. When I feel that I'm made complete by something other than the gospel, I become, uh, I, I, I realize and become angry that the thing isn't as I hoped for. So it's only when I realize I'm made complete by the gospel that I'm able to settle. Only Jesus, in other words, can do this completing work. And he's done this on the cross. So the second thing that Paul points out is that the gospel supplies resources to become complete. All right, the third of four questions that Paul asked is found in verse four, if you'd look again in your Bibles. The third rhetorical question helps us remember that the gospel is worth every sacrifice that we might make uh, for it or because of it. Look at what he asked in verse four. He said, did you, Galatians, did you suffer so many things in vain if indeed it was in vain? Now, when Paul asked this question, he knows their backstory, and they of course know that he knows their backstory. And they were a group of people who, uh, when they became Christians, they did suffer a little bit for it. In fact, uh, it's in Acts chapter 14 in the middle of ministering in the Galatian region that Paul and Barnabas had to exhort all the Christians and had to tell them, hey, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. So they had to be encouraged in Galatia, in other words, that hey, suffering is going to happen as a result of being a Christian. Well, what Paul is wondering now is, did you go through all that suffering in vain? Was it pointless? Because you suffered for the belief in the gospel, but now you've added to the gospel, so you've destroyed it. So now is all the suffering you've gone through in the past, is it really in vain? Now, I don't think that Paul really thought it was in vain for the Galatians. Uh, that's why he said, if indeed it was in vain, I think he still held out hope for them. But what Paul seems to be saying is, look, all that suffering that you endured, it's not worth it if you're not standing for the true gospel. But by su- it that way, Paul seems to be saying that the gospel is the one thing that's worth any sacrifice that we might make for it. And I think I would say it like this. There's a lot that you can turn to for motivation, uh, but the gospel is the only thing that can motivate you perpetually if you see it clearly. If Christ is clearly portrayed to you, it is a motivation that will last to the end Of your life. And if I could say it like this, legalism or man made rules are never worth sacrifice on our parts. And when someone says you can't watch movies or you can't drink a glass of wine or you can't trick or treat or you can't get a tattoo or you can't have a nice car, you can't have nice clothes, you can't work out too much, when people say things like that, you know, a paper cut would be too much to suffer for those man made rules. You know, they're just not worth sacrificing really anything for. They might be someone's conviction that they've received from the Lord, but to place it as a legalistic code upon everyone wouldn't be right. But the gospel of Christ is worth every drop of blood, every ounce of sweat, every tear that falls for it. And throughout the centuries, billions of Christians have done that. They've made sacrifices because of and for the gospel, and every sacrifice has been worth it. And when I, was, uh, when I was growing up in the 80s and 90s, there was this interesting movement that um, developed among a lot of young people, usually young men. It was called the, I don't know if you remember this, if you were around at that time, it was called the Straight Edge Movement. And uh, usually comprised of young men. <clears throat> and uh, they were, it was really interesting what they were like. I wasn't into it, but I knew some people who were. Uh, they were into really hard music, and they were into violence but they were also not into drugs and alcohol. And a lot of times they were abstinent sexually. Sometimes they even add on something like vegetarianism or something like that. It was like this real legalistic code of conduct. This is how we're going to live and be. It was kind of like a response to, the punk rock culture of that time. They had their own punk rock version, but it was like we're strict with ourselves rather than we're just chaotic people like the punk kind of life was uh, proposing. Um, And it attracted a lot of young people, like movements like these always do, but it really didn't last. You know, I don't know many guys my age that are like straight edge for life, you know, kind of thing. It began to fade because it could only attract somebody for so long. It could only capture their attention for so long. But the gospel, it can inspire you for a lifetime, and for billions of lifetimes after that. And every sacrifice that you make for the gospel, financially, or emotionally, or physically, it is a sacrifice, I'm telling you, that is well worth it. And some of you are very conscious of this. You have yourself sacrificed things for the sake of the gospel. I've talked to people in this church that have sacrificed romantic relationships for the sake of the gospel. Somebody came into your life and they were pressuring you to behave in ways uh, that were contrary to scripture and to do things that Jesus died for on the cross. And so you decided for Jesus instead of that relationship. Some of you have sacrificed social status for the sake of the gospel. You know, the things that you had to say or the things you had to do or the things you had to believe in order to become socially accepted were things that Jesus died for on the cross in some situation. And so you decided for Jesus instead of social status. Some of you have sacrificed financial gains for the sake of the gospel. The sins you had to commit or the lines you had to cross or the corners you had to cut to gain more wealth were things that Jesus died for on the cross. So you decided for Jesus instead of those financial gains. And some of you have sacrificed your emotional safety for the sake of the gospel. You know, to love and serve the people that Jesus died for on the cross, you have to risk emotionally. And you made that decision. You decided for Jesus and his work instead of your own personal safety and self-protectionism. And all these sacrifices and many more, they're worth it. They're worth it. The gospel is that good. The gospel is that valuable. Okay, but the last thing that Paul talked about, the fourth and final rhetorical question that Paul asked, it helps us remember number four, that the gospel asks us to trust God on an ongoing basis. The gospel asks us to trust God on an ongoing basis. Look at what he asked in verse five. He said, does he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you, did he do so by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Okay, this, this last question was meant to draw the Galatians back to the supernatural working of God's Spirit in their midst. And there were supernatural things, the book of Acts tells us, that occurred when Paul came to the Galatian region. And Paul wanted to note how did those miraculous things happen? How did the work of the Spirit occur among you? Uh, Did it happen as a result of your works You know, you did so many good things that God decided to bless you in this way or was it a result of your faith? And they would have said, absolutely, hands down, it was a result of our faith. We didn't even have time to do any good works yet. We believed in Jesus and the Spirit started doing all these wonderful things in our midst. It was definitely a response to our faith, not our works. Now, when I say it was a response to their faith, I don't mean faith that God would do miracles. They weren't even thinking about that. Sometimes that's the way that kind of concept is presented in the Bible. If you just believe um, big enough and strongly enough, then God is going to work a miraculous thing in your life. Kind of similar to, I don't know, Santa Claus or something like that. If you just believe, then it will happen. But that's not what Paul is saying here. He's saying that they believed in the gospel. They believed in Jesus, And because they believed in Jesus, the spirit just began breaking out in their midst. And what Paul wanted them to do was to continue on in the same manner. He wanted them to continue on in faith, to trust God in an ongoing way. What he's saying is, that's where victory is going to come from, trusting in the Lord, not by your works. What do I mean by this? Well, let's use an example that You don't have to admit to if you don't want to, but it's a very common one amongst humanity. Let's consider the example of sexual temptation. It's one of the most powerful forms of testing that many Christians will ever endure. Uh, But the Bible's clear that sexual pleasure is meant for and within the confines and covenant of marriage. Uh, So what do we do with the temptation the pressure to go outside of the confines of marriage in order to find sexual fulfillment. Well, some would say what you really need to do is you really just need to try really, really hard. That's what you need to do. You need to make a big commitment and covenant and contract. And absolutely, you should make a commitment. You should say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. But rather than just try really, really hard, what Paul seems to be suggesting is that If we wanna experience the power of God in our lives, we have to continue in the same way that we began. We have to continue trusting in God. What does that mean? Well, in this instance, what you would say is something like this. You'd say, God, I trust you. I trust your word, which tells me not to enter into sexual immorality. I trust that you know better for me than I know for me. I trust that you love me, that you have my best interests in mind. Uh, even more than I do. And I trust that you have better plans for my life than I could even dream or concoct for myself. God, I trust you. And a person who demonstrates that level of trust in God, I think what Paul is saying is they're going to experience the power of the Spirit helping them to do the very thing that they're committing to in that moment. But a lot of times, that's what it is. It comes down to a matter of trust. Someone says, I don't trust God. I don't trust that his word is good. I don't trust that I should, be, uh, I should follow it. I don't trust that he has my best interest in mind. I don't trust that he knows my situation. So I'm gonna take matters into my own hands. But that's not how we're to continue. That's not how we make progress. We make progress by trusting in the Lord. Matthew Harmon said it this way. He said, today's church is awash in books and seminars that promise the key to the Christian life is found in three keys, five steps, or seven principles. And while there may be helpful elements of such books, they can easily give the impression that ongoing faith in Christ and walking in the power of the Spirit are insufficient. But Paul makes it clear that faith in Christ not only initiates the Christian life, but is also the ongoing means by which we live the Christian life. So these are some of the ramifications, some of the benefits I think that Paul is declaring if we uh, have a constant vision of the public portrayal of Christ as crucified before our eyes. In other words, when Jesus becomes famous to us personally, when his sacrifice on the cross is understood and appreciated for what it is, these four beautiful results will follow. We'll see first afresh that the Son of God died on the cross, and because of that, when we believed in him, the gift of the Spirit came to dwell within us. So now a result of believing in the gospel will be that we'll turn to him for leadership and guidance and strength. When we see afresh, number two, that Jesus made us complete on the cross, we will realize that he's constantly there for us throughout life, and he still wants to complete us. When we see afresh the immense value of what Jesus did for us, by substituting himself for us, we will become willing to sacrifice anything to live for him. We'll become radical because we've seen the cross. And lastly, when we see afresh how simple faith in the gospel released God's power in our lives, we'll continue to express simple trust or faith in him and watch his power unfold towards us. But for this to happen, we have to, as I've been saying all sermon long, we have to see the gospel. We have to see Christ clearly portrayed as crucified. It's one of the reasons why I'm always talking about the gospel, why I'm always talking about the cross of Christ. We have to see it continually in order to see these results continually. Uh, The week that Jesus died on the cross, before he went to Jerusalem, he passed through a town called Jericho. And when he went through it, a, a big crowd of people gathered together and everybody was shouting out and pulling down Jesus but there was a blind beggar there whose name was Bartimaeus. He was at the city gates and he was begging and he heard the commotion and he put two and two together and realized that Jesus was coming by. And so he began to shout out. He couldn't go to Jesus. He couldn't see, had no one to help him. And so he shouted out over and over again, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. You might remember this story. Uh, Everybody around him tried to silence him, but he just kept shouting louder and louder. Finally, Jesus called for Bartimaeus. And he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? Have you ever had the Lord ask you that question? You're just in a little pity party, you're throwing a fit, and then he says, what do you want me to do for you? You're like, I don't even know. I'm just kind of like getting it out right now. But Bartimaeus was ready. He said, let me recover my sight. And Jesus commended Bartimaeus then for his faith. He healed him, and then with his renewed vision, Bartimaeus joined Jesus on the road to Jerusalem. I think that Bartimaeus can be a metaphor for every believer in Jesus. When we aren't hearing a clear, continuous, and bold portrayal of Jesus Christ and him crucified, we inevitably slip into spiritual blindness. In other words, we become like Bartimaeus in his blindness, begging for scraps, turning to lesser things to solve our issues. But when we cry out afresh to Jesus, asking him to open our eyes again to him and his cross, we begin to see once more. And with our sight, there's Jesus. And we're able to follow him again. So my prayer is that every day we would be a people who ask him for sight so that he and his cross will be clearly portrayed to us. That we would be a people who ask him to show us afresh the gospel.